is by the power of his love. And as his people are living in this kingdom, Jesus wants them to know, they will encounter and experience evil. And that doesn't jive, and that's part of what he wants to teach here. Because the question that comes up is, look, if you were bringing God's kingdom on earth, if you were the one who is ushering in this reign of God, why is there still evil in the world? If, if the kingdom of God means there's a restoration of what creation was supposed to be, and that there's going to be an elimination of evil, that death will be no more, that Jesus, that God will wipe away all the tears, why is there still evil? And part of what Jesus is getting at here is acknowledging that tension that his disciples were experiencing, but also what his disciples to this day continue to experience and make sense of. This parable, then, is about the ongoing presence of evil despite the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven and about Jesus' commitment to ultimately remove evil from the world. It's about this ongoing presence that we see and experience despite the fact that he's brought it. So our question number two is this. What is it that Jesus expects for his field? Because the field belongs to the sower. What does he expect? Well, the good seed, we're told, stands for the people of the kingdom. And the first thing that I think we can see is that Jesus expects his world to be filled with people of the kingdom. What is it that the sower is trying to do? He's trying to sow good seeds, seeds of people in the kingdom. The sower sets out to fill his field with it. The weeds are not what he plants. Jesus envisions a new kind of world. And the thing about his kingdom is that he's saying, look, come, come, come to me. And yet the way that Jesus will teach us is about this idea is in John 3, verse 3, Jesus likens the entrance into his kingdom that he's bringing as being born again. And then right after that, he adds that you can't enter into the kingdom unless you experience this spiritual rebirth. Babies are not conceived on their own. They are not born on their own. And seeds don't dig a hole and then plant themselves in the soil. They're planted in the soil by someone. Seeds need to be planted. Babies need to be born. And becoming a Christian is not just simply this human endeavor where we decide we come. There is something otherworldly, divine at work when that process happens. Once you become a Christian, you realize that God, by his spirit, was at work, that he has come on in and has been dealing with you to reorient your heart, to reorient your desires, the way you see life, yourself, God, you realize that he's been at work, that he actually has desires for your life. And if you're thinking that coming to Jesus, becoming a follower of Jesus, is really just about you changing you, that's, that's not it. Changing some external things, but nothing internal. That's not what Jesus wants. That's why there's a seed that is planted that transforms soil. It's the power of God that comes into our lives showing you things you wouldn't have realized on your own. The Spirit has to come into our lives and remake us from the inside out. And it doesn't have to be a dramatic thing. I remember when I was younger, I thought you had to have a really intense and, and, and um, darkness to light, very clear type testimony, and that's not always the case. But you do need the work of the Spirit in your life 
It's that knowing that something's changed in you, that you're not the same person. Jesus expects for you and I to become these seeds of the kingdom that get planted, and he expects that the seeds grow. In verse 30, he, he tells his servants, look, do not uproot the weeds right now, because if you do, you might pull up the weed. I don't want to risk that. Let both grow together until the harvest. The seed has a purpose, and it's to grow into wheat, to grow into something that is nourishing, good, and useful. Jesus expects there to be growth, and that growth is supposed to look like, to borrow another picture from the Bible in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, growth in that way, the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus expects a growth in your awareness, too, of your own brokenness, of the ways that we fail, of your sin. And yet, if you stay there, you're missing it. You're missing it. And many Christians, we can just stop right there and start to feel terrible at ourselves. And that is not what Jesus intends for his people. He also wants his people to increase and grow in their awareness of his love for them. Both of these happen as you're growing. As you seek to follow him, you will inevitably become far more aware of the ways in which you miss the mark in life of your own weaknesses and your own sins. This is part of your formation. This is part of what Jesus wants to do in your life because he's committed to the total transformation and you cannot be willing and able to change unless you're actually aware of what's off in life, unless you actually acknowledge it and invite him in. And yet, as you spend more time with him, you will feel more love than you did before. Those of you, pretty much all of us in this room, anybody you spend enough time with, what happens eventually? The person learns about you, and they see things about you, and they also see the things that aren't so great about you. And if they're a good friend, they confront you on the things that are harmful. They don't have to be rude about it, but they'll let you know, hey, Every time you, this happens, you go and do this. Do you know how that makes me feel when you do that? Not all, we're usually not self-aware, and so we're not, we don't know how that makes, until that person tells us, and then we realize something that we didn't necessarily intend to do is having this effect on someone. That's a gift. It's a confrontation, but it's a gift. And when we're in relationship with Jesus, he will walk with us and make us aware of those ways in which we are actually doing things that are harmful to ourselves, to others, that actually undermine our relationship with him. And it doesn't mean it'll be easy. But the thing about Jesus is that he does it because he wants to heal and restore you. He doesn't do it out of a place of wanting to condemn, but out of a place of love. Scripture will teach us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us meaning we didn't have it all together. While we were purposefully and unintentionally missing the mark, Jesus chose to lay down his life for us. He already saw the ugly parts of our lives. He already saw the unhealthy things in our lives, and he willingly laid down his life for us to set us free from all of that, to make relationship with him possible, to restore us, to renew us. So we don't have to act like it's not there. We don't have to deny it or ignore it. What happens as we walk with him is we actually become more sensitive and aware of it. 
and willing to actually engage with that confrontation. But sometimes we avoid it and we dislike it because we're afraid that it actually defines us. That the things that we're doing that are unhelpful or harmful or flat-out evil define us when someone confronts us. So you get caught lying and someone says you lied and you hear it as your identity is you're a liar. So what do you do in that moment? No, I didn't. Why? Because there's this terrible part, there's this fear within us. It's like, no, like, I don't want to be, I, I, I can't be a liar. I, no. And what Jesus wants to make clear is, look, I've come to restore you, to turn you into a seed that is good, that actually brings good into this world. But this cannot stay in your life. This is not who you were meant to be. This is not who I see you to be. And this needs to be removed. And it cannot be removed unless you acknowledge it. This is what happens as we walk with Jesus. This is the love that a heavenly father has for us, that Jesus makes known to us. It's a love that never fails. And this is not an overnight thing in our lives. It's an ongoing thing in our lives. Jesus wants to see this wheat grow. The seed that is planted, he wants to see it grow and bear fruit. And so if Jesus expects to see his world filled with kingdom people, and bearing fruit, and another question has to be, what does Jesus, the sower, see as obstacles to what he desires in his field? When Jesus names the enemy that is planting these weeds, he does something that might have been interesting to the audience in the first centuries. He doesn't name Caesar. He doesn't name Herod. He doesn't name Pilate. Think about this. Israel is a colony of the Roman Empire. They are not free. They have this oppressor hanging over them. It would make a lot of sense to point to him and say, this guy's the problem planting the weeds. This is the reason we can't experience the fullness of life God intended to bring. It's because of the government. It's because of those ruling over us. That's not what he does. He doesn't even say it's the system. It's the system of the empire. He doesn't say it's the economic system or a culturism. He doesn't say it's the religious system. He doesn't, he doesn't go in any of those ways. He doesn't say those things must be removed in order for you to be free. According to Jesus, the enemy is the devil or the accuser. He is the one working to plant a countercrop to undermine what the sower intends to do, what the sower wants to see. And this crop that he's planting looks similar. Inst yet, instead of bringing nourishment and life like the wheat would, it's bringing sin and evil into the world. See, Satan, the Bible believes that there is a personal evil force called the Satan, the accuser, and he seeks to prevent God's shalom, God's wholeness. He seeks to oppress humanity and foster idolatry. He is the leader of what in, in, in Ephesians is called the cosmos kratoros. It's this Greek word for literally cosmos grabbers. There is this battle. The enemy is waging to grasp after God's good world and to seek to enslave humanity through these idolatrous practices and destructive ideologies. Why? Because with the kingdom coming, it threatens his kingdom. He is seeking to grasp and hold on to what does not belong to him. 
He is walking and entering into the fields that belong to the sower, Jesus. And he's not just trying to, you know, plant something different that's nice. He's trying to plant something that's destructive. This explains why most human beings were longing for the world to be a place of good, to be a place of peace, of justice and love, and yet something compels us to wreak havoc and destruction instead. Human beings are compelled to contribute to evil and to death in the world. That is evil at work, and it looks sometimes very small on the, on the, on the scale of evil, of what's most destructive to less destructive, and in the news, we can hear of the most destructive examples. But we're aware of the way that can express itself in our own relationships, the way that we've experienced it through other people, in our work, or in our home, in our families. See, when we pursue and choose to do evil, evil ruins things in a couple of ways. One is it creates injustice. It is like a person who chooses to steal from another person or someone who hurls horrible words at another person. When that happens, injustice is created. They owe something to that person to make the relationship right again. But evil also vandalizes that relationship by creating this wound and a lack of trust. And that has to be made right. And see, here's the thing that all of us have, including myself. We see the evil in the world, the disciples of Jesus see it. And what is it that we say what is it doing here? Why is it here? Why are you allowing it? But below that's like, it needs to be removed. You need to, God, you should be removing and weeding out this evil. Weed it out. And so the, here's the thing that we don't recognize we're doing when we have that at work in this. We are asking him to weed out the evil in the world. But in so doing, we're also asking him to weed us out as well. Because there's evil in our hearts. We all contribute. We all do it. And so for God to get rid of evil, he would have to get rid of us. And what does the sower say? Don't. No. Don't. Do not pull them out. Let them grow. So how then will the sower Weed out evil and sin. That's our fourth question. How will Jesus weed out evil and sin? I think there's a two-part answer for us. One is Jesus has already begun. This is what Jesus came to deal with. This is what Jesus is doing when he says, I have come to bring the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent and believe. I have come, uh, come to wipe out evil. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he spoke of a king who would come to deal with evil. And he would do it, though, by becoming a servant, suffering and dying for the evil of his people, and his life would be the sacrifice. And that is what Jesus does. My kingdom will wipe out evil at first incrementally. I will defeat evil through my atoning death on the cross. My death will pay the ransom for the debt for contributing to all of the evil and death in the world. My blood has the power to wash away the vandalism that evil has caused in and around you so that you can live with peace with God and with one another. That is the righteousness 
that Jesus is talking about, this righteousness that exists in these children of the kingdom, the people of the kingdom. It's being rightly related to God, which leads to being rightly related with yourself and others and the earth. It leads to peace. And yet Jesus' death wasn't final. Scripture teaches us that he rose from the dead, and because of that, he's, this, he's the sacrifice that broke the power of death and evil. And this means that Jesus lives on to offer us life. Anyone who will accept his sacrifice, his invitation to come and follow him. And when he does that, when we do that, we become these new seeds of life planted in this world that bring good, not evil. So his kingdom has been sown, but Jesus says it hasn't been harvested. There's a day when it will be harvested, though. The kingdom has come. The seed has been planted, but it is hidden right now. And yet on the day of the harvest, the kingdom will become visible. The kingdom already exists, but it is hidden. Yet there will be a day when the kingdom is visible and all will see it. In verse 41, Jesus says, At the end of the age, the Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. On that day of judgment, the days, how it gets sometimes described in the Bible, when the kingdom comes and is visible and comes in its fullness at the right time, Jesus will weed out everything that causes death, evil, and sin, and he will wipe away every tear from every eye. And we aren't told when that day will come. We just know that he has dealt evil's decisive blow, and everything has changed because of it. And that is what we see with all those seeds being planted in his field, is good being planted. And so every time you and I bear good fruit, like when we choose to forgive people who harm us and release them into God's care and accountability, there is good. When we choose to not let money be the thing that gives us peace, but we actually choose to look for opportunities to bless others with what we've been given, we're choosing this good. We're bearing good fruit. When we exhibit lives of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness with the people closest to us and the people at work, our neighbors, the person who cut you off, whoever that person is, a Calgary Flames fan, you're exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit. Maple Leaf fan too. So what then is the primary call for us? What's this call here? Because the challenge I have when I read scriptures, sometimes I'm looking for what is the imperative? What is it that we're being called to do? And yet here in these parables, we don't really get that. We don't get an imperative. Like when Jesus teaches on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, when someone slaps me on the cheek, turn the other one. And I'm like, I don't want that imperative, Jesus, but at least I can tell where the imperative is. Here in the parables, it's harder I think one that we can see is this, this call from Jesus for us to keep growing. 
Jesus will not let the ongoing presence of evil thwart his good plans for the world. Jesus will not allow the presence of evil to stop you from becoming all that he created and redeemed you to be. The presence of evil in your own life, in your heart, and the presence of evil around you. He will not allow that to undermine his purposes in your life. And it's that difference, it's the fruit that will distinguish the wheat from the weeds. Because the weeds cannot yield a good crop. They just can't. Only wheat can. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul will write this to the church in Colossae. He says, look, for this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. Why? Why is he praying? He says, we continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. And then he says, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of the Lord, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, his glorious might strengthening in you so that you can grow, so that you can bear fruit in every good work. There's a call for us to continue to grow as followers of Jesus, to not get settle. To not, if you think of the last week's parable, to not allow the worry of the age to choke out his words in our life. To not allow the deceptiveness of riches to choke out the word. To not allow bitterness to stop us from growing. And the second thing, though, and perhaps more challenging, is to keep patience. to be patient as we live in the in-between, between the inauguration of his kingdom and his kingdom being made visible. Because as we stand there, we feel this tension. It's why this one guy calls those who are uh, mourning these aching visionaries. Because you see the gap between what God has promised and what is. And it hurts. You ache for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness, to be made fully visible, because on that day you know evil will be removed. Your sin that hinders you from experiencing the fullness of life will be completely removed. It's no longer going to be affecting you. Death won't be there. Every tear will be wiped by the king. And so you ache longing for that. And some days it's harder to be patient some days it's harder to feel like you have hope. You cognitively know it, but here there's this disconnect. And so there's a part of you that wants to give up. There's a part of you that it just feels like it's actually easier not to hope. It's easier not to be patient and just do something else that distracts me from what the ache is. And part of what I think Jesus would want for his people is to say, no, I will return. Listen to what Psalm 27 says. Wait for the Lord. Be strong 
and take heart. Be courageous and wait for the Lord. Take heart. Why? Because there's a part of us that in the face of evil that we see around us, in us, we want to be discouraged. We, wanna, uh, we want to actually just stop waiting and look for something else. But the psalmist says this. He says, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. That is why they can say, wait on the Lord. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. I will see the goodness of the Lord. It's a statement of faith, of trust. I will see your goodness in the land of the living. That's why we wait. Why do we wait? We wait because those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. Why do we wait? We wait because those who wait on the Lord are in sync with the kingdom. They're in line with the kingdom. See, the kingdom of heaven is like this seed that's been planted, but it hasn't been harvested yet. And there's an enemy that is working. And one of the signs that you and I have lost sight of the kingdom being a seed that is planted is we become cynical. We become pessimistic. We become bitter. We give up hope about life, about the world. And we don't always articulate it, but we feel it. The world, the field belongs to him. The harvest is inevitable. It will come. And so there's, there, there's this tension that we might have. On one end, it might be the hopelessness. On the other end, it might be this overexcitedness, this impatience for the kingdom to come, this overzealousness, which leads sometimes to this quickness to condemn when we see brokenness in a group of people, in the church, in a community that isn't perfect. It's one or the other. The call is to actually live in this tension of being patient. His kingdom will come. It will be harvested. It will be made visible. You're losing sight of it, though, if you become hopeless or you become overzealous. We've got to be patient in it. And the, one of the things I was thinking about this week is my kids. See, if you, if you understand that the kingdom of heaven is like this farm, like a seed that's been planted, then you will be more like my seven- and four-year-old sons. See, our home, our home is full of lots of broken toys. Sometimes on purpose, sometimes by accident. Today, we were just talking with my kids about how they like to, one of them likes to wake us up by, I'm going to do this, by banging really hard on the floor with his toys. And that's the sound we hear when we wake up. And the other one likes to wake us up by making the siren sound. I'm not going to repeat it for you. But today they were laughing at me when I was reenacting what they do to wake us up. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes when they're playing, they will break things. But both of them live with this great confidence that their dad can fix what they break. <laughs> they do. Because it might be a Lego set, it might be an action figure or this animal or something else. But when they break this toy, they come and put it on the kitchen island. They leave it there. And then they wait till daddy comes home and says, Daddy, could you fix this? They have this, I, sometimes I think like they're overly confident in my ability to repair things. But they believe I can. 
They can't use it, but they wait in confidence. They wait in hope until I return, that dad will fix it. They're young. They're only seven and four, but they can wait. And when I come, dad, can you fix this? Dad, could you super glue this? Dad, could you rebuild this? And more often than not, thankfully, I do get to fix it. There are some I can't. I'm just a human father playing with my kids' toys. Okay? But we have a king in Jesus who reveals the heart of our heavenly father. And he will come to restore all things. He will make all things new. He will weed out evil, all the sin in you and around you. You can trust him for it. And when you live with this confidence that he will set it straight, that he can take all of the trials you and I live with, all of the waiting, and use it for our growth to make us more holy, more joyful, more loving and kind, you live differently. You walk with the hope, the hope of the kingdom. He can fix it. He can restore it. And the sign that he will do it is his people. Those seeds planted because he's already restoring you. He's already at work in you. But there will be a day where he brings it to completion. And it won't just be a little bit of super glue. That's why he talks about the very end of this passage or this parable. I want to read it exactly how it's put. He says in verse 43, Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. The righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of the father. There's this picture of the glory of God that becomes something that his people in the kingdom get to actually reflect, actually get to have so that they shine the way the Father shines. And that happens as you and I continue to grow, continue to wait in patience. And what happens is the reason you and I will shine is because we will be people who reflect the character and the love of Jesus the King. We can trust him for it. So Father in heaven, we come before you and we confess that there is sin in our lives. And that there are times where we don't even want to acknowledge it. We don't want to be confronted with it. But we also know that the seed that you want to plant is a good seed that leads to growth, that leads to joy, that leads to the flourishing of humanity. And we know that you are committed to our good and the good of this world. And so we pray that you would help us to trust you, to keep patience, to continue trusting you so that we would grow and bear good fruit that doesn't just bless us or our families, but our city, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our world. And we pray that as we encounter evil around us, that you would enable us 
to be light and salt, that you would enable us to keep hope, believing that there will be a day where you will restore all things and wipe away every tear. And so we thank you that you don't abandon us or leave us to do this in our own power, but you strengthen us with your might that enables us to grow and bear fruit. And so right now we pray in thanksgiving for that promise, that hope we have in you. Amen. We're going to take communion.